Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Honey and Code. I'm Sarit Packer. I'm Ita Mansurovic. We host these as kind of a bit of our pet passion. We talk to cooks and to makers and to producers and to writers, waiters and drinkers and people that think about food and are obsessed with food. We're hosting the special edition of the from the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Well, there's an exhibition called Food, Bigger Than the Plate. It tells the story of our food from its origin in compost through to farming and trading, cooking and eating and everything that's on the table. We'll be joined by some of the exhibiting teams and have a conversation with them about everything related to their installations. Today we're joined by Fernando Lapos. Uh, help us in welcoming him, please. One of the first things that you see as you walk into this exhibition is this really breathtakingly beautiful wall panel in um, different shades of, of purple and pink and beige and yellow. And tell us a little bit about it. Describe a little bit what, what it is, what we're seeing. So Totomoshle is a new material, which is a decorative veneer that is made with the leaves of native corn from Mexico. And I guess something that most people don't really know is that corn is a domesticated plant. Uh, it doesn't really exist that way in nature. And the process of domestication uh, was started in the central valleys of Mexico. And it was a process where through about 9,000 years, uh, Mesoamericans started to select and enhance certain traits for all these different varieties and, and effectively increased biodiversity, created so many more species than uh, nature had produced before. And so this gives us what we have today. In Mexico, we have over 60 different kinds of corn and each one of them has a specific color, uh, has been bred to grow in a specific uh, soil, in a specific altitude, in a specific weather. Probably the most important is it's been bred to have a particular flavor and a particular culinary trait. You know? So this is, this is uh, very important for the way we cook and how food tastes in, in my country. You know? And the, the totomosle, and I, I did stay up all night 
practicing. I hope I'm saying it right. <laughs> Totomosle. Totomosle. Yes. Totomosle. Now it's difficult, but I think in a year or two, <laughs> we will all be, you all know, very, flo very yeah. fluent in Totomosle. So this is the actual leaf, like the leaf that we see from the husk. No, around yeah. the corn. Yes. Um, so you know how Eskimos have like seven different words to describe snow. Well, indigenous Mexicans have like, I don't know how many to describe the different aspects of corn, you know. So, so in Mexico, you don't go and you say, hey, can I have some, some husks or some leaves? If you don't say totomoshle, they might think that you mean the lower leaves or the middle leaves or, you know, you need to specify really, what so leaf it is. Really, it's a specific leaf that comes around the corn. Yeah, well, the, you know, the husks, the yeah. ones that are around the grain that protect the grain, that have very different properties to the rest of the, of the leaves in the plant are commonly called totomoshle in many of the native languages of, of Mexico. So in the process of making the actual veneer or the actual art, you use it a lot for furniture as well. What, what happens? What, how, do the, how does it actually... We do the whole cycle. So we go from um, selecting our seeds, planting them. We wait about eight months and wait till the end of the life cycle of the corn. So here, normally, you eat corn on the cob. That's an immature cob. That's not fully formed. So we wait until the kernels are hard and dry, and the whole plant is dry. And then at that point, we take the cobs off the, off the plant, and we take it to our workshop and very carefully cut the bottom of the, of the stem and gently peel all of the leaves off so we don't crack them. And then the process begins. So we, we uh, get it wet and then we use just household irons and iron it flat and there's a series of cuts that you need to do. It's a bit like, it's a bit like filleting fish, you know? You need to know <laughs> where to cut for it to unroll in a, in a certain way. Once we do that, it's flat and then we... We use an ecological adhesive to bind it to recycled card. And that's just to reinforce it. And this is, this is a process that is often used to make commercial wooden veneers. So you need to reinforce it with something. So then we end up with little squares that are perfectly flat. And at that point, we can cut them uh, with, by hand or with a laser. Or we have this little press that we use. There's like a cookie cutter that cuts the shapes out. To make the marquetry. Yeah. So the, the image, well, the, the piece that you see in the museum is all these polygonal shapes. And those are done with a particularly cookie cutter that I designed. And, and then it gets all reassembled by hand. And all the beautiful colors that, that we see there, because it is amazingly rich color you know it goes from you know light kind of almost off-white to almost black and all shades of you know pink and and reds purple and, and reds this these are all natural colors yes yeah. yes this is something that i've I'm, i actually have to put it really clearly in all my press releases and every time i go and give a talk because people think oh, he's dyeing it with natural dyes, or he's using... I mean, it's so vibrant. But no, that's how the plant grows. And that is just testament to that amazing process of selective breeding, because that doesn't exist in nature. That's, that's just man's ingenuity. It's amazing. And what happens to the corn itself that's under all those leaves that you're using? Corn is food. A lot of people have forgotten about that, you know. Most of the corn nowadays get planted to do other things, but corn is food. So I collaborate with, our, with a community of farmers, and, and the idea is that they get to keep the grains, they get to use it to feed their families, and only if there's a surplus, if we have a really good season, we look to sell it elsewhere. But, um, but for the most part, it's for them to eat, of course. So how, how did you start this? How did you get to, to do this work? You grew you're up in you're a designer, you're not... 
a farmer. But and you didn't grow up in a, in a village that was... You grew up in Mexico City. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. quite far away from a, yeah. a cornfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up in Mexico City. My dad is a baker. There was a man that used to work in my dad's bakery. And his name is Delfino Martinez. And Delfino became sort of part of my family, really. And we became so close that he invited us, you know, my whole family to visit his town. So, Tona Wixla. This must have been around 1993, 1994. This and is the, the region of Puebla? This is in, in the state of Puebla, right on the border of Oaxaca. So this is the southwest in a mountain range called the Mixteca Mountains. And it's called the Mixteca Mountains because the main ethnicity in this area of the country is indigenous Mixteco. So it's a wonderful place. It's a very dry area, um, full of cactuses. There's almost these like cactus forests everywhere. And, and this, is, this is also part of why it's such an interesting story. They have these kind of techniques to make things grow in this unbelievably dry place. But to go back to why I, I first went to Tonawixla, you know, we, we went with Delfino when I was six years old for the first time. In Mexico, there's, there's still quite a bit of racism and the social classes are very divided. So someone from Mexico City rarely has the opportunity to go to an indigenous community like that unless you're invited the way we were. So I think that was really nice on the part of my parents and, and of Delfino that they, we managed to, um, to have this understanding. And me and my sister loved it. So we, we decided that it was going to be our summer camp. And my parents were like, well, it's a lot cheaper than sending them somewhere else, you know. <laughs> so, so we went every summer uh, from when I was six years old till when I came to Europe when, when I was in my teenage years. So for me, it's always been a really important place. So fast forward to... 2015, uh, this is after a few years after graduating from industrial design and, in, well, it's called product design, but it was very industrial, you know, so a lot of packaging, a lot of smartphones, a lot of, a lot of plastic, you know, and, and, and coming from Mexico, I always felt like I needed to design for that part of the world as well. We don't, we don't have an industry, we don't have an industrial production, and we have this know-how about natural materials that I've, I just felt that, you know, there, there was a huge potential there. So I went back to Mexico in 2015 to do a residency for three months in a cultural center called CASA in Oaxaca. And this is an art foundation uh, that was started by an artist called Francisco Toledo, who besides from being a, a, a very famous artist, he's, he's also a very fierce activist. And back then... Mexico was starting to decide whether to put a permanent ban on genetically modified organisms, GMOs, especially because of corn. Yeah. Which is very progressive. I mean, it's completely counter to global trend. It is, but it had to happen in Mexico. Me Mexico was the first place where men started to modify corn 9,000 years ago. So I think it's very symbolic that we're, you know... The first to stop as the well. First, the first to kind of pr preserve that heritage as well. But at the time, it was uncertain. Monsanto and Bayer had just fused together, and they were pushing really hard to, to lobby the government to lift the ban. So at the same time, there was really, really strong demonstrations everywhere. So it was hard not to get involved in the discourse, you know. But for me, I saw a lot of the artists, you know having one fist up and down with the corporations. And, and I thought it was a little bit of a, a cliche. I mean, I think it's important to be politically active. But I thought that part of the problem was also an economic one. There is very distinct 
differentiations in the market between hybrid corn and industrial corn. Industrial corn has been engineered to weigh a lot more, so native corns are, are lighter. So financially, it's just really hard to make a living nowadays out of native corn. So this was the sort of the beginning of this idea. How can we create value for the corn, create another source of revenue for the farmers, and to give them that incentive to you know, go back to planting native corn again? And actually, it's made quite a difference, hasn't it? Because you've got quite a few women working on the project, which means they can suddenly earn money rather than just stay at home and tend to kids or, or tend to farms and stuff like that. So how did you manage to get the village on board as well? Yeah, that wasn't easy. It was really because of Delfino. So Delfino um, retired from Mexico City, went back to Tonawixla. And Tonawixla has a very interesting social structure. It's, it's what's called an ejido. So it's all the land is communally owned. No one owns their own parcel. So all the decisions of what happens in the town as a whole is determined by what they call uh, an indigenous assembly. So, and normally it's an elder that heads this, this assembly. It's what they call the commissioner. So, so Delfino became the commissioner of the town. So he was in a bit of a, you know, uh, a, a powerful position at the time. It's a good friend to have, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a good person to know. <laughs> Well, this is a town of 200 people, so yeah. <laughs> Powerful Intona Wixlam. When you went back, because you had a bit of a gap between going there as a yeah. kid, did you think it was quite different from when you, were, when you used to go as a kid, or do you think you didn't really register much as a kid? It was completely different. I had this memory of Tona Wixla just being a very small town where, yes, people were poor, but they could feed themselves. It was a busy town. Uh, and then I went back to, in 2015, you know, to reconnect with Delfino. At the beginning, I was essentially just looking for, for materials because I couldn't get it in most markets in Oaxaca, which was already the first kind of warning sign for me. Oaxaca is supposed to be the most traditional place in Mexico nowadays, and we cannot find uh, colored corn easily at all in the markets. So I was like, whoa, you know, this is, this is a big problem. So I'm going to try to go to the most remote place I know, which was Tanawixla. That's what brought me back to the place. And when I, when I arrived there, it had become this sort of ghost town. No one was around. All, all the, the, the schools were closed. Uh, the main assembly buildings were, were closed. But especially the, the fields were completely eroded. You would see all these rocks sticking out from the soil. So clearly something had happened. It was, it was extremely sad to see that most people had immigrated because they couldn't grow anything anymore in there. But at the same time, it was, it was inspiring to see that Delfino had taken his role as a commissioner very seriously. I had no way of contacting him because there's no phone or there's no internet around there. So I literally just drove there to try and find him after you know, 10 years of not seeing him. So when I got there... I saw this really devastating la landscape, but at the same time I saw him with a shovel digging holes, reforesting with a group of men his age. You know, they're all in their 70s. And they're the only men left. You know, all the young men are, are gone. So for me, that was quite an emotional moment because I said, well, they're not doing them, that for them. They're really doing it for my generation. So, you know, how can we... Make it how, how, I mean, how can I help them achieve that goal? So it was interesting because they had this very forward-thinking repair plan 
with ecological methods, you know, so they started a communal composting center, they were reforesting, they were doing a lot of things, but they were still planting industrial hybrid corn because, you know, they couldn't make, make end meats otherwise. So that's, I think, where I... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Came in. Yeah. And the, the original tradition was people growing corn and then keeping some corn for their next year and then sowing that. And what changed with, with industry coming in? So the, the traditional way of farming in Mexico, especially for corn, it's, it's, it's the system called the milpa. And the milpa is combining three plants, corn, black beans, and pumpkins. And these combinations are, they're called the holy sisters or the Mexican holy trinity, these three plants, um, because corn is sort of like a man-made plant. So it has an unusual intake of, of nitrogen from the soil. So if you only plant corn, you need to use fertilizers or something else to keep the soil going. But what the ancient Mexicans figured out was that if you plant it with black beans, beans have these little nodules in the, in the roots that fix nitrogen back into the soil, and that keeps the soil fertile. What happens is that the, the black beans climb the, the, the corn plant, and then the pumpkin starts to spread on the, on the floor, and they produce these really wide leaves, and they carpet the whole floor. So the, the moisture and the humidity is retained there. So that's also how they managed to farm in these very dry conditions because just a light rain is enough. But it also protects the soil from sunlight, so it blocks it so no weeds start to grow. So it also concentrates all the goodness of the soil for these three plants. So it's a system that doesn't need fertilizers, doesn't need pesticides, doesn't need herbicides and kept the soil fertile and kept them producing food all year long. They didn't need to do a, a rotation system. It's, it's really genius. So what happened was in the 1990s, um, Mexico was with really big ambitions of becoming a, a, a power in Latin America 
We signed a lot of treaties with uh, all sorts of countries, but mainly the United States and Canada, uh, the now infamous NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And what we did was we opened a lot of the regulations to agriculture in the country. And that really opened the way for imports of GMO, herbicides, and pesticides, etc. Also imports from corn from the United States. That brought the price of corn down from one year to the next by two-thirds. So that meant that if you wanted to make the exact same money that you were making the year before, you needed to produce three times more. The government knew that this was going to be a really big problem, especially for small rural areas. And so they rolled out these welfare programs where they said, well, you know, the problem with you guys is that you're really poor because you're not producing enough, money, enough things to sell. So we're going to help you with that. So here are tractors, you know, and the tractors would just roll down the hills because, you know, these are tractors that are made for the American Midwest, not the Sierra Mixteca, you know. So tractors didn't work. They introduced um, hybrids, herbicides. And the herbicides, basically the hybrid seeds have been kind of engineered to withstand the toxins from the herbicides, the weed killers. So it forced farmers to go from this really harmonious polyculture to a monoculture because these things that they were spraying would kill the beans and would kill the pumpkins and only hybrid industrial corn would grow. So that exhausted the soil within a few seasons and that started the process of erosion. And then after a few years, they couldn't grow anything. And that's why it started the, this really big migration, most of them to the United States, ironically. So, <laughs> so when, when you wanted to find these original indigenous corn, did you have to ask them to grow them for you? So that was probably the most challenging part of the project. Because even though they were really eager to start this new ecological tactics, they knew how hard it is to reintroduce a seed that hasn't been weathered, as they call it. Yeah. I didn't understand that at the time. And the thing is, in Mexico, and especially with indigenous communities, it's really unpolite to say no to things. So they kept on saying yes to things, but in very kind of, you know, <laughs> weird it, ways. So then it's, and just things wouldn't happen. It just took me some years to understand why they yeah. were saying no, or why they weren't putting so much effort into it. I think the, the reason was that for I mean, me... Everyone's laughing because it's very English, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think for me the, the thing was that I didn't understand the risks that it implied for them. For me it was just like, oh, we're going to try this year and if it doesn't work out, we'll try the next year, you know. But for them that could mean not being able to feed their families. Yeah. So we tried to introduce two years in a row. The first year we had terrible results. The second year we had slightly better, but not, not good enough. Corn is extremely sensitive to altitude. So it's really important to choose the right seeds. And the problem was that in the 90s, all these welfare programs convinced farmers to switch their native seeds for the supposedly improved ones. So there were no more seeds in the town. So what happened was I started to published some updates of the project and I entered a competition in Holland that was about food and food design and for that I needed to do a video and it became a little bit of a viral video in Mexico and that got me the attention of this place called the CIMIT which is the world's largest seed bank that specializes in corn. So they have thousands and thousands and thousands of sub-varieties and varieties of corn from all over the world, but especially from Mexico. 
And we started a process where, you know, I went to see Denise Kostich, who's the, the leader of, uh, of the seed bank, and she was like, okay, well, tell me what your problems are, you know? And I, and I, and I told her, and I was like, well, have you taken an altitude reading? And I was like, no. Have you taken so soil composition analysis? No, you know? So she's like, okay. So she gave me, she gave me a, a device, and she's like, go and stand exactly where you want to plant and take a reading and take a soil sample and bring it back to us. And so that started a really nice process of me learning a lot more about agronomy and agriculture, but also me as a designer being this kind of fluid person that could link the seed bank and the farmers. Yeah, and I think it's actually, there's something very nice about the, the same kind of technology that's used by, you know, the, the big agriculture companies <laughs> is available to you as well. Yes. And, you know, maybe on a smaller scale, but... The same technology that you use to eradicate these varieties is the same one that you use to make them thrive. Totally. And I've had fascinating discussions with Denise because their seed bank does work as well with big corporations. They're actually starting a really interesting process whereby now you sign, I mean, I had to do it, you sign all this paperwork that you're receiving indigenous and ancestral intellectual property and that I can't patent anything in particular. But anyways, that's a whole topic. But what Denise and the Seed Bank did was they created a selection for us. So they selected 16 varieties that would fit according to the weather, the soil composition, the altitude, etc. And we introduced them in 2016. And out of those 16, uh, not all of them did well, but uh, about eight of them re did really well. And then we selected the best that we wanted from that first batch and then we've now narrowed it to six so we have six species that we've managed to reintroduce successfully and what we are doing now is we are offering the grain for free to everyone in the community uh, with the condition that they sell us the leaves back the leaves. have they gone back to any types of food that they used to make before because suddenly these corns are available again is it yes definitely definitely because that's also part of the problem there were recipes that they couldn't do anymore corn is you know really the most important grain in in most of latin america but especially mexico so you could really do a comparison with europe in the sense that imagine that from one day to the next you would have one kind of wheat and you would have the exact same wheat to make a pizza or to make a sourdough, to make a pasta or to make, you know... A cake. A, a cake. Uh, yeah. A cake. You, you need different kinds of flowers, so you need different kinds of wheat. If you only had one kind of wheat, your gastronomy would suffer a lot. And this is what we're experiencing in, in Latin America. Yeah. I think that it's a problem worldwide, really, isn't it? That varieties are depleting and, and farmers reliant on having to buy yearly seeds rather than letting things happen naturally is really decreasing our diversity of what, what we can consume, what we can grow, and how the ground is reacting to it. Do you think we're starting to see a change in that, a, a better understanding of what we should be doing? Yes, in the sense that I think more people are aware of it, but I don't think people are willing to pay for it. And I think you really need to have a major restructuring of sort of the power structures of how food is traded. Uh, who are the middlemen, who makes the most profit, and how do they do this. The way we're, that we're set up at the moment, we're really set up for big, massive quantities of food being shipped all over the place, uh, and you need standardization for that. So 
until we don't start to change that, I think this is just going to get worse and worse. There's so much seed development and fruit development and, and just species development through small farmers. There's no competition, really, between industry and research centers and small farmers. And this is something that is proven in Mexico. You know, even if you have massive corporations with huge budgets, they can't compete against 35 million small farmers, each of them making their own selections every year and refining and increasing certain characteristics. So we have to sort of create a structure so that these people can live more decently, so that they can really reap the benefits of what they, what they plant. The knowledge is still there. We just need to create the right circumstances for that to flourish. And awareness would help listeners buying certain things, supporting certain communities and paying a bit more for food, really. And I think not just food. I think it, it is important to state, you know, the, the exhibition, the Bigger Than the Plate, is divided in four. And the, the first part of the exhibition is about the waste, really. And, and your exhibit, or your beautiful marquetry, is a waste product, really. You see something of such immense beauty and... It is not, not much more than a byproduct of, of food production. In the town, it's not waste. I mean, with that, they, they wrap uh, corn dough and they make tamales so they can eat that. Uh, they feed them to their goats. Uh, you know, the, the core of the, co- of the corn, they turn into charcoal. The stem of it, they turn into reed for their houses. They use absolutely everything of the plant. I think waste is a very kind of like Western concept. It's a very, <laughs> no, it's a very modern concept. Yeah. The whole idea of the good bit and the bad bit, it's not, it's not really a thing. Obviously, I've had a, a big impact in the town, but they have had a huge impact on my practice as well. Just from a philosophical point of view of how you see things, um, it's, it's, it's changed everything for me, really. I mean, at the beginning, I used to be like, you know, oh, the Milan Furniture Fair is around the corner and, you know, the London thing and this exhibition, I need the leaves now, you know, and they'd be like, you have to wait eight months, man. You know, we just planted them. <laughs> yeah, so tell really, that to the corn. Yeah, it really has taught me patience, you know. So, so I think, like, food and food production and food transport and food in general is so linked to the ecological challenges that we're going to be facing, you know. It has a huge impact on climate change. It has a huge, huge impact on sustainability. All of these decisions that are made at a government level, often advised by committees from research teams in, in universities and things like that, and we rarely see indigenous communities included in all of these conversations, you know. And it is really like this indigenous knowledge that I think is going to have a lot of the solutions for the challenges that we're going to see in the future. And I think this was extremely evident this year. Mexico is going through a really bad drought. It's really weird because in the States everyone's flooding and in Mexico there there was no rain, you know. And Mexico had a huge loss of corn this year because even the hybrids, the industrial hybrids that are supposed to be really drought resistant, you know, they they all died. But not in Tonawixla. We had a really good harvest. And that's because the seed bank managed to find seeds from that region from 50 years ago that have been stored in their vault for 50 years. And these are the seeds that we replanted. And those seeds have been bred for thousands of years to grow in extremely hot conditions. So if we just look at the food market in terms of volume and in terms of profit, we're dismissing all of these seeds that we'll probably have really important traits, genetical traits, that might help us 
you know, overcome a lot of the challenges of the future. So it's not only the, the genetical information of the seeds, but it's the indigenous know-how of how to plant them, of how to combine them with other plants, of how to, you know, strike a balance with nature. And, and, and it's really horrible that we've really pushed all of these communities aside, we've forgotten about them, and, and that they're living in absolute horrid conditions, you know. So this is what the project tries to do, is really to generate an extra source of income, but also to say, hey, you know, this is what's happening. Um, yeah, and, so. and I think actually add another layer of knowledge and another use and another something that we can do and maybe pass on. I don't know. I think, I think it's great. For sure. Just a, a quick last question. The impact on the area, is that having an impact or not yet? Or? I get a lot of requests on Facebook for some reason, farmers in Mexico love Facebook. You know, they don't they don't have internet, but as soon as they get internet, you know, they're on Facebook and they're, and they're using it in really useful ways, actually. So I get a lot of requests for seeds. So we're starting to also just you know send envelopes with seeds to people that want it, or to connect them with the seed bank if they want to plant in places with different altitudes. And within the community yes definitely you know it's a it's a town that i mean unfortunately went from being a town of close to a thousand people to only 300 that are left now but we're employing you know on a flexible basis about 50 of them so 50 out of 300 uh, and we started just with delfino and a few other men you know so it's really creating some some really good impact especially with women because most of the young men that can work well like i said you know, migrate to the States, and now because of how hard it is to cross the border, you know, um, a lot of these men, instead of just going there for seasonal work, they go and they stay there for five, six years at a time, you know. So you have young mothers that are raising small children, just basically living off money that they send through them through, you know, transfers, and they have nothing to do, and they have no saying in their household. You know, I really saw this as a, as a demographic that had a lot of potential. And so they, they've been great for the very delicate marketry work. We've trained so far about 30 of them. We're paying them five times the national minimum wage. So the minimum wage is not much. But, mm. but you know, we're paying them quite well for the area and for the cost of living. So, you know, whenever I have a big commission, we call more people. But then the, the, the team is flexible. And this allows them as well to have enough of a monetary cushion to still take care of their kids, still take care of their farms and their herbs and everything, that, and, and also celebrate their traditions. And, you know, and w whenever one can do it, we call another one. So it's really good. It's a bit like freelance work. You know, I introduced the concept of freelance work in, uh, in, in Donna Weeks. In life. Mexico, actually. Yeah. You know, for me, ending on women earning more and, you know, and doing more and definitely earning more than the men, which one of the women on the video was yeah. saying, this is a good place yeah, to, yeah, yeah. No, to, end the, to end the food talk. Definitely. Actually, I've had, I've had angry men yeah. that have, come, <laughs> sure. that have yeah. come to me and say, like, what are you doing? But, you know, like, that's, that's the way it is. I mean, yeah. Can everyone join me and thank you, Fernando.
Join us again for another special edition of Honey and Co. from the V&A. It's a really incredible exhibition. If you want to see Bigger Than the Plate at the V&A, you can get tickets from their website. There's a tasty little promo for our listeners. You just uh, type... Food 40. We give you a 40% discount and you can come and enjoy it for yourself. It's really worth it. Hunger. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.